Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. This is the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this Wednesday, the 19th of February. I want to just lead off with the question. Uh, I always lead off with the question, where in the word are you today? I also just going to briefly ask you, where in the world are you today? Um, Because the the physical geographic state in which you live is relevant to this first little conversation we're going to have because uh, Wallet Hub has now made a list of 2020's most sinful states in America. I'm sure you want to know uh, where the most sinful states in America are, those with the um, worst drug use problems or those with the most gambling uh, debts, those actually in debt overall. I mean, all kinds of, uh, of criteria here to make the list. Number one uh, on the list of Wallet Hub's most sinful states in the United States is Nevada, I found it kind of surprising that Texas came in second as the second most sinful state in the union. Uh, My state comes in sixth, sixth most sinful state in the United States. Uh, If you live in um, in Minnesota, I guess scroll down here because you're not apparently living in a very sinful state. Forty one. If you're wondering, Minnesota. We're holier than thou. Wow, you're literally holier than thou. Oh, my goodness. You know, righteousness, wow. righteousness starts in cold weather. Look at, you know? look at, okay, so let's just, let's just, for a moment, our live listening audience, North Dakota is 41, Minnesota 42, Iowa oh, okay. 44, South Dakota 45. See, the upper right? Midwest, right? Oh, my goodness, yes. Um, wow, all right, so apparently Faith Radio is having a real impact. <laughs> in the places where Faith Radio is being live broadcast, people are living in okay, less sinful states. What about states. Connecticut? We got Hartford. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't. I, oh, there are thirty-eight. There's there still you go. Go. All right, there you I go. know. Still so now, really good. So now we just right. need Faith Radio in Nashville and Memphis. There you go. Yeah, and Texas apparently. And, okay, and, and Nevada. Worth, yeah. Okay, Las Vegas. <laughs> so let me pivot here. And ask the, you know, the play on words question, because it's worth consideration. What does it mean to live in a state of sin, in a sinful state, versus a state of grace? So that's going to be the theological play on words I'm going to encourage you to have today as you are um, asking people and responding maybe on social media to this Wallet Hub piece that's, you know, people are probably going to bounce it around a lot on, on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. So this gives you an opportunity as a Christian to say, hey, you don't actually have to live in the sinful state anymore. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, The rest is just by degrees. And without Christ, we're all dead in our sins. We all live in a sinful state, no matter where we actually geographically reside. And so the real question today is not, is not how deeply into sin our state, but why we don't live in the state of grace instead. So let me encourage you um, to acknowledge the reality of the state of grace as an ontological reality that you could be living in right now. You could be living in Christ saved by God's grace alone, 
Um, and no matter what geographic state you're in, you could be living in the ontological state of grace, the theological reality of God's grace. And in this state, God governs, and the citizens live by the principles of the kingdom of heaven. We live as co-heirs with Christ. We are in Christ. That is the state of our being. And in the state of grace, there's more than enough to go around because grace flows in all sufficient measure. It covers a multitude of sins, and it never runs in short supply. So there's only one way into the state of grace, but it's actually a way that's open to everyone, and everyone who seeks to enter in by Jesus is welcome. So if you are living like most of humanity in a state of sin today, I want you to consider accepting the free gift of God and move into the state of grace. All right, I'm going to talk with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com up next about the bankruptcy of the Boy Scouts and what we can not only make of it, but what we can learn from it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. from BibleandBusiness.com. If you were to log on now to the website, you would see as the lead, the Boy Scouts have filed for bankruptcy and a conversation about that. So, Bill, welcome back. Hey, thanks. Good to be back. So, um, the Boy Scouts of America, this is all over the news. They have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Yes. Um, They say that it's a result of the mountain of sexual abuse cases brought against them. Yes. uh, And they filed in the District Court of Delaware. Talk about the objectives. What are they trying to achieve? What is their stated purpose uh, in filing for bankruptcy protection? Yeah, the Boy Scouts of America are trying to achieve two things by filing uh, this uh, action in federal court. First of all, to achieve what they call equitable compensation for the victims of sexual abuse who were harmed during their time in scouting. And then the and, by, and they're going to do that by setting up a trust fund that will adequately, uh, at least in their view, adequately compensate the victims of sexual abuse that occurred while they were scouting. Uh, and then secondly, they want to continue to carry on the mission of scouting for years to come for millions, maybe tens of millions of of kids in the future. They don't want to see that end, and they want to keep that going. And so in order to uh, achieve both of these ends, they have chosen bankruptcy as the route uh, to go. It's a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which means that they are simply uh, reorganizing their debts and they are not walking away from any of them. And the reorganization includes the request to the judge to create a trust fund for those who have been harmed uh, in scouting in years past. So here's one here's one of the things that I believe we are going to see emerge in this conversation um, that the Boy Scouts may or may not anticipate um, the damage done to a person uh, by this kind of trauma. It it doesn't it's not it can't be confined to like m- what happened to them during their time in scouting. Like, right. It's ruined their lives in many cases. Like it's it's fundamentally changed who they are and every relationship they've ever had and how they function in the world and their employability and, I mean, their mental health. I mean, just go down the list of the post-traumatic stress that people experience who are sexually victimized as children. And so I do think that that is going to be a conversation that's going to emerge, if not in court, it's going to emerge in the public conversations about the Boy Scouts 
seemingly now whether or not this is what they're trying to do, seemingly trying to protect themselves from having to sort of face the music over and over and over and over and over again as every victim gets their justifiable day in court. Yeah, so, um, boy, several things you you bring up there. Uh, First of all, I am a victim of sexual abuse as a child. Mm, So so I know what that's all about. And a victim's compensation fund would never fully heal me or fully heal um, all the gunk. I'll put it, I'll use the word gunk uh, that I've had to live with uh, for different parts of my life. Having said that, this is the way that organizations can go in order to achieve some level of of equitable um, uh, compensation. Organizations can't heal people. Only people can heal people. And really only God can heal people, right? So Mm -hmm. Boy Scouts of America can't do that. But what they can do is what they are doing, and they are using the bankruptcy court in order to at least monetarily help uh, pay for counseling, help pay for group therapy, help pay for other things that people can then hopefully find healing through. And so I, I, I don't view this as them hiding behind something. I view this as them saying, look, we have a mission. It's a good mission, and it's a mission that we need to continue on in, and, and we're going to use the bankruptcy court to end the dribble, dribble, dribble like you were talking about, end the dribble of these lawsuits. We're going to package them up, treat them as a single unit in bankruptcy court. We're going to create a trust fund. And then we're going to put this behind us, and we're going to make sure this never happens again in the future. I think that's about the most that any single organization can do without just simply going out of business. So you enumerate here at BibleandBusiness.com in this piece on uh, the Boy Scouts file for bankruptcy, you you enumerate um, five, how are we describing them, five positive benefits. Uh, you say that they come in no particular order, but do you want to run through those? Sure, yeah. Uh, the, the first one is uh, for the millions of scouts who benefited from scouting, they're going to be able to continue to enjoy scouting. And I, I think that's a real win here because uh, let's say that, that the number of victims, let's just say it was 500 victims. I don't know how many there were. Maybe it was less. Maybe it was more. But those 500 victims, while they need to be taken care of, we shouldn't necessarily remove the benefit of scouting for the millions who benefit from that and our society that benefits indirectly from those millions having gone through scouting. Uh, So that's the first benefit. The second one, BSA, uh, is meeting its social and moral responsibility. This was not forced on them. This is something that they uh, proactively did. And and, uh, I kind of am standing on the sidelines clapping my hands a little bit on this one. And and I'm saying, you know, good for them. They stepped up to the plate and they're going to own it and they're going to do what they can as an organization to make things better for their victims. So those would be the first two. Um, So, yeah, it sounds like from estimates um, that the uh, from the Boy Scouts own estimates, they expect to hear from between one and five thousand victims. That's a lot in terms of in terms of those who would be seeking compensation from this fund. Well, I do. And I also think that that means that they're anticipating that this victim's compensation fund is going to necessarily be huge. And they have $3.3 billion in assets. So I think they have the wherewithal uh, to um, create the fund, and probably they have a plan in place to continue to fund the fund, so to speak, uh, over the next coming decades in order to make that fund last. 
All right, uh, Bill English and I have to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation um, about bankruptcy. Maybe we'll talk about the different types of bankruptcy, and maybe we'll just have more personal conversations um, along these lines as well. Continue uh, the conversation with us in just a moment. I'm talking with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. He's making Continuing my conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com, we're going to pivot from the piece that you can find there, which is entitled Boy Scouts File Bankruptcy. If you want to read the rest of that, please do so at BibleandBusiness.com. And and, and Bill, I, I just want to pivot this other piece because I think that when we start talking about bankruptcy, and we've already said that the type of bankruptcy protection into which the Boy Scouts of America have entered is Chapter 11, but there are other chapters in terms of bankruptcy. So talk about the types of bankruptcy filings. Sure, yeah. First of all, the word chapter just refers to the different chapters in the overall U.S. federal code that deals with bankruptcy. So uh, a lot of times you'll hear about Chapter 13 bankruptcy, which basically reorganizes all of your debt. Uh, The court approves a monthly payment plan so you can pay back a portion of your unsecured debt and all your debt over a period of three to five years. So Chapter 13... So wait, so when I... So let me just ask. So when I hear like an... When I hear like an ad on the radio... For, you know, somebody who uh, was in all of this problem with the IRS, they didn't know how they were going to pay them off, and somebody helped them figure out the solution to that, that is probably a Chapter 13 repayment plan? No, it's probably probably they're able to talk to the IRS and get a, a settlement. Oh, so that's just a completely different thing. That's just a completely different okay. thing. Sorry. Uh, most, Sorry. That's, mo- see, that's where the mind sometimes runs. Well, I apologize. That's, no, don't apologize, please. Um, the chap- the, a lot of people do Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which is really about, uh, and it's the most common type of bankruptcy for individuals. It's really known as a liquidation or a straight bankruptcy. You go to the court, you say, here's my income, here's all my debts. I can't even make the payments on my debts. I need to declare bankruptcy. In most states, the court will decide if they will grant you bankruptcy or not. But in most states, they will uh, not take your house, your car, or your retirement accounts. Uh, And because we are broadcasting here, I think, in what, five or six, maybe seven different states, uh, you just need to check on, on your local state laws for that. So we're actually via streaming where we have listeners in all 50 states. So you definitely need to check. Oh, that's true. We don't don't really have any idea what the rules are in your particular state. So there you go. You know, I'm so old school. I'm still thinking, (laughs) where are the towers, right? You know, (laughs) I ran into people. I ran into some people over the weekend at an event in um, uh, in Orlando, and they listen to us every single day in the great state of Texas. So there you go. How nice. I know. It's Uh, very nice. Okay, so we've talked about. Chapter 7, liquidation. We've talked about Chapter 13, which is which repayment. Is the- we've, we've talked about 11, which is large reorganization. What yeah. else have we got? So 13, just to go back, 13 reorganizes personal debt. 11 reorganizes business debt. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Chapter 12 is for family farmers and fishermen to avoid having to sell off their stuff if they had a bad year. Chapter 15 deals with international bankruptcy issues, and Chapter 9 uh, bankruptcy is really there for towns, cities, school districts, other municipalities uh, to reorganize their debt and pay back what they owe. Most people uh, are going to either deal with Chapter 7, which is the straight liquidation for individuals, or a Chapter 13, which is an individual reorganization, or a Chapter 11, which is a business reorganization. Let's talk about the lead up to a conversation where the word bankruptcy would would enter in. 
um, you know, the, the stress related to downsizing, the stress related to, you know, looking at revenue and, and looking at revenue projections and just recognizing you're just no longer going to be able to continue to operate or function the way you've been operating or functioning, whether or not you're an individual or a family business or an institution. Talk about the stress that's created in a, in a system, in an environment when um, the conversations about, hey, we are going to have to um, downsize what we're spending and that, that's going to mean making some cuts. Um, talk, talk about the stress that's created when those conversations begin. Yeah, uh, there, I actually have an uh, a article out of Bible and Business called The Emotional Price Owners Pay When Their Business is Failing. And uh, you're now in the in the sweet spot of my whole uh, professional career because that's what I do is turnarounds. I we take businesses that are failing, and we make them profitable again. And the emotional stress, the the physical stress, the mental stress is is huge. It is absolutely huge. It's 24 by 7. It feels like this dark cloud weight that's on you. It never goes away, and yet owners rarely let you know about it because they have to put on uh, some semblance of a veneer that everything's okay for their employees, for the people at church, uh, for their family, uh, because to to tell the truth would mean that they probably would lose their business and then they would lose their source of income, their livelihood, their prestige, their, you know, er- everything that's wrapped up in that. And you know what that is because your husband's a small business owner. So um, there's... The, the the stress is amazing, and and I've seen owners carry this for years before they ask for help, which really is the wrong thing to do. All right, so let me just encourage you that particular article. Um, you can if you just Google the emotional price uh, and business the words emotional price and the words business failing. This is the article that Google will send you, and it is at bibleandbusiness.com. It's actually from um, December of 2016. Mm-hmm. So let me just encourage you if you are. Uh, facing this conversation at any level in yes. in your family business, in your church, um, maybe you've got a local college or university that is having just conversations about um, some sort of economic stress related to, wow, there's just a lot going on in all of these environments right now. Um, and, and certainly if you, if you've got a business that where the conversations have started about, you know, belt tightening or the conversations have started about um, downsizing these are um, these are really important conversations to have about what's going on emotionally with each and every one of us in the midst of um, of those conversations. So before we get to the word bankruptcy, right, there's a lot of emotional stress um, before we arrive at the place where we can say that word and enter into those proceedings. Uh, absolutely. And let me let me just I, I rarely do this, Carmen, you know, but if you are in that spot, give me a call, send me yeah. an email. I will help you. At least, if nothing else, I'll just talk to you on the phone and give you um, a few ideas to work with and and see if that doesn't uh, help out. Because this is what we do at Platinum. Forty percent of our work is turnaround work, and uh, and we're very good at it. So. Amen. And you guys can you guys can really really easily find Bill at the BibleandBusiness.com website. Bill English, as always, thank you so much. I feel like this is probably a subject we should circle back around to. Um, it's, it's, it's real for people. It's real churches. I mean, you know, churches and small businesses and family farms all on the front line of closure conversations. And so let's, um, let's be sure we till this soil in an ongoing way in our conversations. Okay. We will. Hey, thank you um, so much for your transparency and honesty and, uh, and the blessing that you are to each of us, uh, week in and week out. You guys can find Bill English at bibleandbusiness.com. We'll be right back. 
So one week from today is Ash Wednesday. Everyone's going to be talking about what they're giving up for Lent. I propose a completely different question, uh, and that would be, what are you taking on for Lent? What one daily spiritual discipline might we take on during the season of Lent that at the end of those 40 days, we might not only be like better prepared for the events of Holy Week and Easter, we might actually have developed a habit that's genuinely good for us. So what if instead of giving up something for Lent, you actually took something on as a discipline of daily devotion? So join me next as author Asherita Chuchu shares her Lenten devotional, Uncovering the Love of Jesus. We'll be right back. This is Max Licato. After spending the better part of an hour reciting the woes of my life to my wife, Dean interrupted me with a question. Is God in this anywhere? I hate it when she does that. What had happened to me? I was focusing on my resources. I wasn't consulting God. I had limited my world to my strength, my wisdom, my power. No wonder I was in a tailspin. For such moments, God gives this promise. We are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8:17. The cronies of dismay, gloom, and rejection have no answer for the promise of inheritance. Tell them, The gauge may be bouncing on empty, but I will not run out of fuel. I am a child of the living and loving God, and He will help me. And because God's promises are unbreakable, our hope is unshakable. This is Max Locato. Today, we're welcoming back Asherita Chuchu. She was recently on to share with us about Bible and Breakfast, which you can find at BibleandBreakfast.com. Today, we're going to talk with Asherita um, about a book that really is an opportunity for us to prepare for Lent. It is a Lenten devotional, Prepare Your Heart for Easter, Uncovering the Love of Jesus. Um, welcome, uh, Welcome back, Asherita. Carmen, thanks for having me back. It's my joy to be here. It's so wonderful to have you. Okay, so um, a lot of people uh, like ask the question, like, what are you giving up for Lent? Let's um, let's do something different. Let's do something different. Let's actually uncover the love of Jesus uh, during Lent. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't grow up observing Lent, Carmen. So it was totally new to me as a college student, and I was just so surprised by how many people asked me in college, "What are you giving up for Lent?" And I was like, "Wait, what Lent?" what is that? We do this? That's so weird. Um, And it wasn't until a few years later that I realized really the historical roots of Lent and what a beautiful time it is for us to slow down and, and meditate on who Jesus is and what he did. But what I found in the last few years is um, the Lord has just been leading me away from an emphasis on what I'm giving up and more on a life of sacrificial love because Jesus in his last night with his disciples said, people will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. He got down and washed their feet and said, if I did this for you, this is how you ought to love one another. So I think the heart of Lent isn't so much giving up Facebook or sugar or shopping or whatever. I think it's identifying with Jesus and his death and suffering by putting our own flesh to death 
and learning to love one another by laying our lives down so that we might then, as Paul said, experience the power of his resurrection in our lives as we join in the fellowship of his sufferings. So why don't you walk us through Lent? Um, Give us a little bit of the history and the rhythm of Lent and why you think it's important for Christians to um, to re-engage this practice. Yeah, so I think um, I grew up in an evangelical subculture, and like I said, we didn't really do Lent um, because it wasn't something that we practiced. So I was surprised as a young adult when I started researching the history of it to learn that Lent goes all the way back to the early 200s. Some of the disciples of the apostles observed this time of fasting um, before Easter in order to um, draw away from those distractions that lure us, um, the, the things that tempt us to put our hope and our affection in the things of this world. Um, it was also a time of preparing new converts who, um, I mean, this was in the time of paganism, right? So, so the people who were coming to place their trust in Jesus were surrounded by other deities and all kinds of immorality. And so followers of Jesus said, let's give them some time to learn how to walk with Jesus and what that looks like. And part of that was this 40 day time, 40 day period spent preparing their hearts, fasting from food um, with someone older who would walk them through the season in order to then be able to step into baptism, this picture of death with Jesus to sin and coming back alive with him again. Throughout history, um, I think it it took, <laughs> we all as humans have this tendency to, to want a checklist of what we need to do to get right with God. I know I struggle with that too. Sometimes I just, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And we forget that our relationship with God is based on grace. And so, of course, Lent kind of fell in that category of sometimes trying to manipulate God with our fasting or our praying or or giving to the poor, saying, if I give this up, God, then you have to give me that. And that's just a human tendency toward, toward sin. So over the course of time, this period of fasting and prayer became just another way to manipulate God for some people. So the reformers came in the 1600s and 1700s and and rejected this form of works-based salvation, saying we're not going to have anything to do with that because salvation is by grace alone. And now, a few hundred years later, I think what I find among millennials like myself in the evangelical subculture is we're, we're struggling for some type of rhythm to our Christian life, um, some way of preparing our hearts to celebrate that, yes, Jesus has died. Yes, he is risen. And yes, he's coming again. And we want that those truths to penetrate our hearts in a deeper way. And that's how I came to this season of Lent to say, I want to reclaim this period as a time not of earning God's favor, because I already have that in Jesus Christ. He has finished the work on the cross, and I can rest in that. But this season of Lent invites me to slow down and to savor Jesus's life and to remind my own heart through fasting and prayer uh, what a beautiful, beautiful Savior he is. 
So in preparing to write um, Uncovering the Love of Jesus, I know you spent a lot of time studying Jesus's personal interactions throughout the Gospels. Maybe just tell us, you know, one thing that you learned that really surprised you about the love of Jesus. Oh, man. Um, There's so much. And Carmen, I was kind of nervous, to be honest, to write a book on the love of Jesus, because I was like, this, if any topic is overdone, it feels like Jesus' love is, right? (laughs) Because I grew up as a little kid singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And um, it's so tempting to just kind of gloss over statements like this, because they're so familiar to us. And so my my heart's cry really was, Lord, awaken in me a deeper realization of your love as I study the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And I was surprised to find how personal, how um, sacrificial, how humble his love is in these interactions with, with people, with day-to-day people. And and so, yes, I spent almost a year in the Gospel of John studying how Jesus loved and also looking at 1 Corinthians 13, which is, you know, the, the classic passage that's read during weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. And I thought, if God is love and Jesus is the exact representation of God, his manifestation on earth, then we should know what love looks like by looking at Jesus' life. And so I asked myself, how was Jesus patient? How was he kind? How did he not boast or didn't envy? How did he consider others better than himself? And it was, it was amazing looking through that prism at the Gospels at how from his very first miracle that was private, that's at the wedding in Cana Galilee, where he turned water into wine in order to save his friend's um, reputation in the community, as well as to proclaim what kind of ministry he would have. But he saved his friend from public embarrassment Mm -hmm. by providing for him in this way, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane when he's arrested and Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. And Jesus reaches out and heals his enemy. This is his last recorded healing in the Gospels. And he loves the person who came to arrest him. His love just knows no limits. And that love compels us then to go and live sacrificial lives of love. So when we come back from the break, Asherita, let's talk about some of the practical ways that we can practice sacrificial love during Lent. And then we're also going to talk about how we invite our children into uh, into this process as well. I'm talking with Asherita Chuchu. We're talking about uncovering the love of Jesus. You can find it at uncoveringthelove.com. We'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Asherita Chuchu, she is the author of many excellent books. Um, we have talked recently about Bible and breakfast. Today, we're talking about Uncovering the Love of Jesus, a Lent devotional. Um, you can find it at uncoveringthelove.com. Asherita, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the practical ways that, uh, that we as Christians can really practice sacrificial love during the season of Lent. Yeah. So as we as we meditate on Jesus' love, uh, we can't help but have that love pour out of us as well. And one thing that I encourage listeners to do and um, readers who pick up the book is 
spent some time at the beginning of Lent asking God, who are you calling me to love? Is there one specific person in your life? Um, maybe someone who is hard to love, maybe someone who has hurt you in the past or that person that walks in the room and you just kind of avoid them. (laughs) Maybe that is the person that God wants to do a miraculous work of love in your heart and then reveal his love to that person through you. So that's one practical thing is to just ask yourself, God, is there a specific person that you want me to love in in a very specific way? this Lenten season. And what I did, Carmen, when I was, again, going through the Gospels and studying this and preparing to write this, I prayed that prayer and God showed me two people in my life that that are in close proximity to me, but there had been hurt in our past. And I walked through Dr. Gary Chapman's five love languages and I wrote down, what are ways that I can use words of affirmation toward this person? What are ways that I can um, maybe show physical touch, whether it's a handshake or a high five or a sideways hug? Um, Is there a gift that I can give this person? Is there a way that I can give of my time? And um, a friend advised me, Asherita, whether you feel like loving that person or not, put it in your calendar commit to obeying the call to love and the feelings will come later. And I did. Carmen, it was one of the hardest things that I did uh, was to love these two people in these ways because I didn't feel like it. But I kept praying, Lord, would you fill me up with your love that it would pour out, that it wouldn't be me mustering love for these people, but that it would just overflow from your love. And by the end of the Lenten season, as we were approaching Easter, It was like there had been a rebirth of affection in my relationship with one person in particular. It wasn't that it solved everything. It's not that we don't have boundaries, but now I can better love this person with love of Jesus in a way that I never could have before. And it's just been the most beautiful Lenten experience. So when we talk about Lent and we talk about the things that we might do um, during the season of Lent, I think that the the question of how do I include my kids in this, sometimes it feels a little easier during the season of Advent and the lead up to Christmas. Um, it's a little more challenging sometimes to to figure out, you know, how do, how do I invite kids into, gosh, conversations about sin and injustice or lament or brokenness or mm-hmm. the suffering of Jesus? So talk a little bit about that and then share with folks where they can find some family resources related to that. Yeah, so I have three kids, ages six and under, and so this I'm really passionate about because I'm in that place where it's like, how do I do this? Um, And so in the book, I included over 30 different family activities, um, different creative ways to observe the practice of prayer and fasting and giving to the poor. So maybe it's that you give up all drinks other than water, no coffee, no soft drinks, no hot chocolate or whatever. As a family, you invite your kids into this and say, we're fasting from other beverages and the money that we save, let's pray together and ask the Lord to show us a family that we can bless with this money this season. That's an easy way to invite your family into it. Another way is to read through some of the Old Testament stories that point to Jesus. So one thing that I did with my girls last year is we read through the Exodus account and the the tenth the tenth plague, how God struck down the firstborn of every family in Egypt. But those who covered their doorposts in the blood of a lamb, that spirit passed over their family. And while I was reading the story to them, I had printed out um, 
like a cartoon image of a sheep. And then we traced that on cardboard and I had them cut out the cardboard lamb. And then I gave them white yarn to wind around that lamb. So it was a white lamb and their hands were busy because they have a a six-year-old and a three-year-old and one-year-olds, right? So their hands were busy making this Passover lamb while I was reading to them about the Passover lamb that, that would save these children of Israel. And then as we were wrapping up, I said, that is how Jesus is our Passover lamb. Because of his blood, God's judgment passes over us. And it was such a beautiful picture of some big theological truths like transubstantiation and atonement that that would be difficult maybe to explain to children. Even adults sometimes have a difficult time understanding some of these theological concepts, but we can teach our children through some of these Bible stories. So to help readers do that, I have not just the activities in the book, but at the beginning of every week of Lent, I have a family devotional that walks you through a passage of the Bible and a question, why did Jesus come to die? And I provide the answer in there so that you can teach your children these truths about Jesus in a way that's age appropriate, but um, that also will help them remember and form these memories and traditions year over year. So I love it. Uh, Folks can find more resources at uncoveringthelove.com or by texting the word love to 33777. Again, you can either visit uncoveringthelove.com or text the word love to 33777 for some of Asherita's resources um, for your family that are related to this this wonderful Lenten devotional, Uncovering the Love of Jesus. Asherita, thank you again so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, thank you so much for having me, and I hope you have a very blessed Lenten and Easter season. You as well. You as well. Um, we appreciate our conversations with you. Friends can also visit Asherita's website at One Thing Alone. We'll be right back. All right. So um, you and I and Christians everywhere, frankly, people in general, are going to be walking out into the world today, either prepared to stand and stand firm or completely unprepared. Um, And so I have been intentionally and conscientiously armoring up using Ephesians chapter six. And I was just reminded um, by a friend this morning who texted that she was praying for me. Um, Just specifically, she was praying Ephesians six. And I thought, wow, I need to be praying not only Ephesians one and Ephesians three for my brothers and sisters in Christ. um, And as I pray Ephesians six for myself, I need to be praying it for others. And so I'm going to encourage you today to armor up. I'm going to really encourage you to conscientiously and intentionally put on the full armor of God today in order that you may take your stand Um, because the enemy is prowling around looking for a way to press into those soft points of your life. And he's got these, you know, flaming arrows and schemes and he never gives up. He never takes a day off. Um, He's not receding even for a moment. And none of us can stand against that on our own. So we need to be in Christ you to intentionally be in Christ today um, and then put on the full armor of God. So let me invite you to, to turn to Ephesians 6 and actually just conscientiously and intentionally put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the helmet of salvation, pick up the sword of the spirit, uh, do it all and under it all, undergird yourself with the truth. You have been listening to Mornings with Carmen. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Have a great day and God bless.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.